Return to the Word is made possible by faithful supporters like you. Find out more at returntotheword.com. Welcome to another edition of Return to the Word Radio with Bible teacher Mark Fontecchio. Advancing the message of God's amazing grace through the teaching of God's Word. And now with today's message, here is our teacher. One day a bus driver was going along his usual route and he didn't encounter any problems with his first stop. Few people got on, a few people got off, and things were just going well. But at one stop, he ran into a problem because a big hulk of a man got on. He was six foot eight inches tall, built just like a wrestler, and his arms were just long. They were hanging down to the ground, and he glared at the driver, and he just told him this. He said, Big John doesn't pay, and he sat down at the back of the bus. Well, the driver's a short little guy, maybe five foot three, a thin guy, kind of meek, kind of timid. So he didn't argue with Big John because he knew what was best, but he wasn't happy about it. Well, the next day, the same thing happened. Big John got on again, and he made a big show of refusing to pay, and he sat down at the back of the bus. And it happened again the next day, and the next, and the next. And the bus driver, he actually began to lose sleep about this over the way Big John was taking advantage of him. So finally, he could stand it no longer. He signed up for some bodybuilding courses, and he signed up for karate, judo, and all that stuff. He took a class on finding your own self-esteem, and by the end of summer, the bus driver had become quite strong himself, and he felt really good about himself. He was confident about who he was. And so the next Monday, Big John entered the bus, and he said it again. He said, Big John does not pay. Enraged by this, the driver stood up and he glared back at Big John and he yelled, and why not? With a surprised look on his face, Big John replied back, Big John has a bus pass. (laughs) Sometimes people are afraid when they don't need to be. Sometimes people are afraid when they don't need to be. And I think some Christians are like that when it comes to their relationship with God, because they think that God is going to judge them over every little mistake they make. So they live in constant fear. They work themselves up into this frenzy, and then they give up when they fall and when they fail. But no believer in Christ, no redeemed child of God needs to live that way. And this is what Hebrews chapter 12 is about to teach us this morning. That we don't have to live with this constant state of fear because we are no longer under the terrifying precepts of God's law. But instead, be confident by faith because you are now under the tremendous promise of God's amazing grace. If you have your Bibles, I invite you this morning to turn with me to Hebrews chapter 12, where we see the kind of relationship that God wants to have with his people who believe in his son. We start this morning with verse 18. For you have not come to the mountain that may be touched and that burned with fire and to blackness and darkness and tempest and the sound of a trumpet and the voice of words so that those who heard it begged that the word should not be spoken to them anymore. For they could not endure what was commanded. 
And if so much as a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned or shot with an arrow. And so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I am exceedingly afraid and trembling. All right, here's what you need to understand as we look at these opening verses, that the big idea here is that this is not, hear me, this is not the kind of relationship that God wants with the church. This is not the kind of relationship that God wants with his people. God does not want us to walk around constantly 24-7 trembling with fear like they did when he gave them the law at Mount Sinai. You remember the scene back in the Old Testament. It was quite the picture. Israel was camped at the foot of Mount Sinai, out in the wilderness, in the desert, on the Sinai Peninsula. And God was planning to meet with the people and speak to them. So he told them to get ready. Don't come onto the mountain, he said. Don't even touch it. Now, Mount Sinai itself, it was untouchable, unapproachable. It was off limits to the people. So much so that God commanded Moses to set up a boundary around the mountain, a bit like a crime scene, like where you have all that do not enter police tape set up. And if a person or an animal touched the mountain, they would die. Hebrews is very graphic here in the word of God about what this was like. When God descended onto the mountain, there was fire, there was darkness, there was clouds, there was lightning, loud thunder. And Exodus tells us actually that the mountain shook, smoke consumed the mountain. A trumpet blast pierced the air around Sinai, causing the people to tremble with fear. God's voice was a rumble so loud and so deep that the people begged Moses to ask God not to speak to them directly like that ever again. The Israelites backed away from the mountain, if you remember. They actually backed away from the mountain. And the people thought they would die if God spoke directly to them. You see, the awesome power and the awesome holiness of God was on full display. And even Moses, the text tells us, was afraid and he trembled before God. Certainly a terrifying experience. But amazing, all in the same, because God promised to be their God, and he claimed Israel as his people. God gave them the law to live by, but it wasn't a problem, because it was never intended to be a means of salvation. It was meant to guide them as a nation, to guide them in their worship of a holy and righteous God. You know, they left Egypt as slaves, and now they came away from Mount Sinai understanding that they were God's chosen people, a nation set apart separate from all the nations of the earth. And the Mosaic Law, it was meant to show the people their need for God. It didn't bring life. It condemned. The point here is that this is the nature of the law. It condemns every person who violates it. The law says that sin leads to death. And since every single person in this room is a sinner, there is no hope, zero hope for us underneath the law. There's only fear of punishment because we know we have broken the law. You know, mom, it's like driving down the road when all of a sudden you see flashing lights in your rear view mirror. You were going a little too fast and now it's going to cost you. You're hoping for mercy. You're hoping for a warning, but you fear condemnation, a ticket. And that's the way that the law works, only it's far, far worse because there is not mercy under the law. There is, as Hebrews 10 told us, under the law, there is only what? 
fearful expectation of judgment. This fear, it cripples, it paralyzes people. Most everyone knows the name Billy Joel. In his earlier days, when he was younger, he wrote a lot of popular songs. But according to an interview in a recent magazine, Billy Joel has been always unsatisfied with his music. He said this, quote, I never felt as good as I wanted to be. Just last year alone, he performed his 100th show at Madison Square Garden, but he hasn't released a traditional new album in 25 years. Now, why is that? Why hasn't he released new music? He says it's actually because of his critics who have sat back and ripped apart his music as sappy, as shallow. And his inability to overcome his critics has frozen up literally his creativity. You see, his fear of condemnation stopped him from publishing any new songs. And this is what the condemnation of the law does for a lot of Christians, because they don't understand that we're not under the law, but they fear it. And it stops them from moving forward in their faith. It stops them from making any progress in their faith, and it keeps them in bondage to their sins. You see, understanding that the believer is no longer condemned before the law, understanding that the believer is no longer condemned before God, it liberates us. It frees us up. It takes away the fear so that we can actually go forward. Don't shake with a paralyzing sense of panic because as a believer, you have not come to the judge at Mount Sinai. You are no longer under the terrifying precepts of God's law, overcoming the fear instead with confidence in Christ. By faith, live with purpose, live with certainty because you have come to the Savior in heaven and now are under the tremendous promise of God's amazing grace. Notice verse 22 with me. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels. You see, for the Hebrew Christians, Mount Sinai was where? It was behind them. It wasn't the way forward in their faith. The separation of God from his people under the law stands in contrast with the access that we have. Why? Because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now we are told to boldly approach the throne of his grace, to live with confidence. It is the finished work of Christ that has made all the difference. Notice these words in verse 22. It says, but you have come. You have come, Christian believer in Jesus Christ, to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God. Look forward, the author is saying, because your entrance into heaven is so sure, it's as if it's already happened. You have come. This is actually a description of heaven. Remember that the people wanted to return back to the earthly city, to the city of David. They wanted to go back to Jerusalem, to the temple, Mount Zion on earth, and the keeping of the law. Mount Zion on earth was what? It was the dwelling place of God. But the author is saying, don't look back. Look forward to that heavenly city because that is where you belong. This is the city that the patriarchs were actually looking for. Hebrews 11 tells us that Abraham, he waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. 
You see, Jerusalem in the first century, we all know this, it was filled with the enemies of Jesus Christ. But the heavenly Jerusalem, it's made up of a completely different group of people, isn't it? It is here that the innumerable company of angels dwell. It is the city of the living God being prepared in heaven by Christ himself. The city of Jerusalem was the center of all political and religious life for Israel. And the heavenly city is the seat of divine government and authority. The city of Jerusalem was about to be destroyed by the Romans, but the heavenly Jerusalem would endure forever. We have come to the heavenly Zion, a place of absolute security. It is a city that is like no place on earth. It is the eternal home of the redeemed. You know, if it wasn't an important subject, the Apostle John probably wouldn't have used a whole chapter to describe it in the book of Revelation. And we know that during the millennial reign of Christ, this city is going to come down from heaven. The redeemed in Christ are so completely saved that God already sees us as citizens of this heavenly city, because that is where our citizenship actually belongs. And right now, what are we? We remain here in this world as his ambassadors representing our king. But the picture now in Hebrews of our access to God is completely changed. At Mount Sinai, God's holiness meant that there was this gigantic separation between God and men. But now we have access to God through Christ and we can be at peace with God. And his angels live with him and his angels serve him and we will too. Verses 23 and 24 tell us to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. Now, when this letter was first written, Jerusalem was a place of rejection for the Messiah. But the heavenly Jerusalem is a celebration of the Holy One. Angels are there. And so will be the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven. It's a very interesting phrase here in the text. The Greek suggests that the general assembly and the church are actually one group, the same group. This is not two different groups. Believers in Christ have the privilege of being a firstborn son, and it is our birthright as a believer to be there. The firstborn son, you remember from our study last week, had the largest inheritance and we learn in Colossians 1 that Christ is the true firstborn. But through him, we participate in this privileged position. We are heirs of the promise of God, called out for his glory, to worship him, to serve him. This is all the believers of the present church age from the day of Pentecost until the moment Christ takes his church home at the rapture. Your names are on a roll written in heaven. The heirs of God, their names are written down in the heavenly book of life. These are the called out Jews and Gentiles that make up the family of God during the church age. Years ago in the deep south, a preacher at a church was praying over this same exact passage in Hebrews. And with quite a bit of animation, he prayed. He said, Lord, we are come to the Mount of Zion. And one of the people, one of these older ladies, an old wrinkled lady cried out, glory to God, as he said it. 
And then he said again, Lord, we are come to the city of God and glory to God, cried out this old woman. Lord, we are in the heavenly Jerusalem. Again, glory to God. And Lord, we are with the multitudes of angels. Glory to God, she said. And we are enrolled in heaven, Lord. Glory to God. And we are with the general assembly. Glory to God. And Lord, cried the preacher, lifting up his hands, Lord, we aren't fit for such honor, Lord. And glory to God, cried the old woman, but it's a lie. She was actually right. We are brought into this company as justified. See, it's not about our righteousness. It's about the righteousness of Christ imputed into us. We are brought into this company as justified because this is who God has made us to be. But we don't have to be just by ourselves up there. That's the beautiful part of this passage. Watch this. We're not going to be the only group there. Included in that city will be the spirits of just men made perfect. Now watch this in the text because this is good. Who is this? They are just because they have been justified. And they are perfect because those justified before God are complete in heaven. Now catch this. The text actually suggests this is a different group in this list of people who will live in this new Jerusalem. This is a different group in the list. This is different from the church. So who would this be? This refers to the Old Testament saints and the tribulation saints when they are resurrected at the second coming of Jesus Christ. You see, the redeemed of every age will stand before the God, the judge of all. They will stand before Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant. And the Lord referred to this city as my father's house in John 14, 2. This is the place believers will share with Christ. In Revelation, it teaches us that this holy city will be the eternal dwelling place of all the redeemed of all ages. And therefore, we have the reminder here that believers will only be able to enter this city because of the blood of Jesus Christ that was shed, which inaugurated the new covenant. You know, we've looked at this before in Hebrews, but Abel so long ago, he offered a sacrifice that was the blood of an animal. It was acceptable to God. But how much better is the offering of Jesus Christ, his own blood? It was a once for all sacrifice. And when Abel was killed, his blood, it cried out for revenge. But the shed blood of Christ, it speaks of redemption. We are brought near to God because of Christ's completed work. And as Christians, thank God, praise God, we don't need Moses to intercede for us by going up on a mountain to meet God because our mediator, Jesus Christ, has provided better access and now we've been made citizens of his city in heaven. Our names are registered, they're recorded, they're written down. We can approach God our Father at any time, any time of the day, any day of the week, and we don't need someone to mediate for us. We don't need someone to go up on a mountain on our behalf because access has been given to the believer by Christ himself. And so what the author is telling us here is that as we run this race, when we reach the end, when we finish our race for the believer, there should not be fear but joy, justice, God's favor, and eternal life in the heavenly city. This is a journey of faith, looking forward to the city 
that is still yet to come. Teaching us that when the days are difficult, and I know those difficult days some of you are walking, when we're having a hard time going through life, when we're having a hard time enduring, then we should look up and contemplate the glories of heaven and of our Savior. Look ahead by faith to the wonderful future he has prepared for us. There will be the judgment we face for the rewards and loss of rewards at the judgment seat of Christ. But understand, believer, that when we stand before Christ, our judge, he's not going to condemn us for every one of our sins that we've committed. When we will come to a savior who died to take all the punishment for them all, that weight of guilt he has taken upon his shoulders. So let go of that fear because you're not under the terrifying precepts of God's law. Live by faith because you are now under the tremendous promise of God's amazing grace. You haven't come to the judge at Mount Sinai. You have come to Jesus in heaven. Verse 25 is an amazing verse. Let's read it. It says, see that you do not refuse him who speaks. For if they did not escape who refused him, who spoke on earth, much more shall we not escape if we turn away from him who speaks from heaven. This is actually a warning to believers. He says, see that you Christians, this is the obligation of those who have the hope of a future with Christ. You see, the author is telling us that God is still speaking from heaven. God's revelation was given to the apostles under the inspiration of God. They recorded what had been revealed to them. That revelation inspired by God and given through the apostles is just as authoritative as the revelation given to Israel through Moses. And the message is when Israel stood at Mount Sinai, they were accountable. They were responsible before God for the word that was spoken to them. And believers, the message, the solemn warning to us as Christians is so are we. We are accountable to the revelation of God spoken through the apostles. Israel could not just sit and walk away from the revelation that was given to them. God would discipline for doing such a thing. And guess what? He did, didn't he? And so why do you think, Christian, as a believer in Christ, that you could sit there and just choose to ignore the instruction of God's word? Why do you think you can fail to heed the warnings to live for Jesus Christ? God's chastening hand will find you. When Israel refused to listen to God's law, they were left to wander in the wilderness. A whole generation of Hebrew people, God's people, they died in their rebellion. And if you refuse to live in his grace, Christian, you're going to find yourself there wandering under the discipline of God. Because God says in his word that when you turn back, when you turn away from the one that redeemed you, you are refusing not just his words, but what does it say? You refuse him. You refuse him. The last soldier to die in World War I was an American. It was 23-year-old Henry Gunther. He was a private with the American Expeditionary Force in France, and he was killed at 10.59 a.m. on November 11 in the year 1918, just one minute before the armistice went into effect. Henry's squad was part of the 79th Infantry Division, and against the orders of his sergeant, he charged against the guns with his bayonet. 
Now the German soldiers, they knew about the armistice. They knew about the peace that was coming. So they tried to stop him. They actually tried to wave him off, but Henry just kept going. He wouldn't listen and he was gunned down, dying instantly. His divisional record states this. It says, quote, almost as he fell, the gunfire died away and an appalling silence prevailed. I think that sometimes this is how Christians are living. See, we have peace with God through Jesus Christ. But some of us in this room are still living like we're at war with God. Lay down your arms, Christians. Live in his peace because he's already won the victory. But don't turn from him. Whatever you do, don't turn from him. Don't live like you're at war with the God of heaven. Verse 26 says, whose voice then shook the earth, but now he has promised saying, yet once more, I shake not only the earth, but what? Also heaven. You know, when God spoke his law on Mount Sinai, the Bible says in Exodus 19, it records, now Mount Sinai was completely in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire. Its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace and the whole mountain quaked greatly. The mountain shook, but the promise of God's word is that one day he's going to shake the earth and the heavens. Haggai actually predicted this in chapter 2, where he wrote, For thus says the Lord of hosts, once more, it is a little while, I will shake heaven and earth, the sea and dry land, and I will shake all nations, and they shall come to the desire of all nations, and I will fill this temple with glory, says the Lord of hosts. You see, the earth shook with the giving of the law and it, because it was signifying that God was revealing himself and a change was coming. And when the messianic age comes, the earth and the heavens will shake with the coming of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And the author, he adds to this back in Hebrews in verse 27. He says, now this yet once more indicates the removal of those things that are being shaken as of things that are made that the things which cannot be shaken may remain. I think most of us in this room were here in Alaska this past year when the earth shook pretty good. It moved some of our homes, didn't it? And it moved some of the roads. But how much more terrifying it will be for those in the tribulation before the second coming of Jesus Christ. Christ tells us in Matthew 24 that before his return at his coming, it says immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then again, the sign of the son of man will appear in heaven and all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the son of man coming on the clouds of heaven with what power and great glory. But even this, even this pales in comparison to the final shaking of the earth. At the end of the millennium, the earth and the heavens will shake one final time when the new earth and the new heavens are all that remain. Second Peter teaches us, it says the heavens will pass away with a great noise and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. So here's the argument back in the book of Hebrews. Everything here, everything before us is going to be done away with. And I mean everything. So why would you turn back to those things? 
For the Hebrew Christians, why would they turn back to worship at the temple when the Levitical priesthood was going to be coming to an end? Everything that they were tempted to go back to was going to be done away with. There is no rest there. And the same is true for us. You can turn back to all the things of this world, or you can turn back to living like the way you used to before you came to redemption in Jesus Christ. But everything you're going to go back to is going to be taken away someday. So why would you? Therefore, he tells us in the last two verses, he says, therefore, since we're receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear, for our God is a consuming fire. If you are suffering for being identified with Jesus Christ, we are told to remember that we have the promise of a kingdom that cannot, it cannot be shaken. You're already registered in heaven, in glory, and so let us have grace. We have access to the throne of grace where we can find mercy and grace to help in time of need. So live with reverence towards God. Live in fear, not that the believer can lose his salvation, but that if you should decide to turn against the one who paid the price for your sin, if you should turn against the one who bought you, his chastening hand, his discipline will find you because we serve a holy God. We serve a God of consuming fire, a God who loves us enough to purify his people making them fit to abide in his presence. And these words are actually taken from Deuteronomy 4, which tells us, for the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. For the believer, this is not to be fear of God that drives us away from him, but it's meant to be fear that drives us closer, closer to his holiness, closer to his son, Jesus Christ. For those in the family of God, don't think of it like you're driving down the road and you look up and you see the police following you in your rearview mirror. I'd like you to think of a better picture of the fear of the Lord for the redeemed in Christ. It's like a teenage driver who suddenly spots her father's car in the rearview mirror. And seeing him back there puts her on notice to be on her best behavior, Hannah, to use her blinkers and stop at that yellow light, to keep both hands on the wheel. But it also tells her what? It tells her that her father cares enough to follow her. It tells her that she's safe. You see, her father's not there to try and trick her or trap her or mess her up. He's trying to help her learn how to drive, to obey the signs on the road and stay safe until she gets home. She's driving on her own, but not completely on her own. And so it is for the people of God. The fear of the Lord means we live life with our Heavenly Father always, always, always in our rearview mirror. We glance up and we see His holiness but we also see something else. We see his love. We see his care. And that's the kind of relationship that God wants to have with you because you are under the tremendous promise of God's amazing grace. Back in 1930, a story came from Vena, Austria, about a woman named Corin Ward. Now, Corin was a struggling actress, and she received a phone call one day from an attorney telling her that she'd been mentioned in the will of a client who had died. She met the attorney at his office who told her that the will belonged to a man who wished to be only known as Dr. Mizaros. But here was the problem. 
She didn't know any doctor by this name, not at all. And so she told the attorney this. She said, there's got to be some sort of mistake. The lawyer was not surprised by this, that Corden didn't recognize the name, but there was no doubt that this doctor knew her. She was a bit mystified by this, but according to the attorney, Dr. Mizoros, he lived in the same city as her. He had fallen head over heels love with her, but he struggled with crippling fear. So he never worked up the courage to go talk with the woman that he had admired from so afar. And even so, he was unable to get over the woman who had captured his heart. The man died alone, but Mazaros, he left every single penny he had saved over the course of his entire life, all $50,000 of it, of his savings. In today's money, that would be almost $800,000. Hear me on this part. His heart belonged to another, but for whatever reason, Mazaros excused himself from a relationship with her. Maybe he feared rejection. Maybe he didn't think he was good enough for such a beautiful woman. Whatever the reason, his excuses left him afraid. His excuses left him feeling all alone. You see, the author of Hebrews is telling us this morning, please don't do the same thing with Jesus Christ. If you've been called to God, if you've been called to redemption in Christ, you've already met the Savior. You already know him. So don't refuse him. Live like you know that your name has been written in heaven because only the things that are unshakable from heaven itself are eternal. The heavenly city is going to remain forever. That's where our Savior is. He's not going to reject you. So why would you refuse him? Let us have grace, meaning let us live in his sustaining grace. Let us be thankful and serve him with reverence and godly fear and keep running that race with endurance. Keep looking to Jesus Christ, remembering that your Father, your Holy Father is in the rearview mirror, and He loves you, and draw on God's enabling grace. Return to the Word Ministries is committed to teaching the full counsel of God's Word and the gospel of Jesus Christ. For more about our ministry, please visit returntotheword.com. Return to the Word is a faith ministry. This means we freely distribute the teaching of the Word of God over the air and online. We do this without charge. If you feel led to support the ministry with a donation to help cover these costs, you may do so on our website, returntotheword.com, or by mailing a donation to Return to the Word, P.O. Box 879-259, Wasilla, Alaska, 99687. Thanks for listening. And we pray that the Word of God will be a lamp unto your feet and a light unto your path. Join us next time for another edition of Return to the Word.